In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning and welcome back. This is Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your Monday host, Brad Furland. Excited to be here in historic Waterbury, Vermont, uh, every Monday. And want to thank you, the listeners. We can't do radio without you. Through the glass here is my producer, Greg Titus. He keeps the trains running, thank goodness. He... Uh, prompts me when I need to talk, and he prompts me when I need to stop talking. So it's a pretty good system. My next guest, I'm very excited about uh, Jason Barney. He's He's been on the show with us. Uh, he's a school teacher at MVU. Uh, he has written books, and He's gonna. We're gonna be talking about a little bit books, and then he was also uh, named, uh, got an award, uh, history teacher of the year. Uh, welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for thanks for having me, Brad. Yeah, it's great having you here, and we're also gonna be talking with Jason about an upcoming event uh, that involves the uh, Paul Lawrence. Uh, Episode in in Franklin County, but it, he was in Chittenden County a little bit too, with as a detective busting people for drugs, and yet he really wasn't. Yeah, uh, it's a long story that starts very early in uh, Paul Lawrence's career. He has some uh, stints with the Vermont State Police. He's down in the Rutland area, and then uh, I believe he becomes the uh, chief of the Virgins Police Department in the early 70s, and then he ends up in St. Albans in late 73, mid to late 73. St. Albans was very concerned about some of the drugs that they were seeing out on the streets. They hired Lawrence as a narc, and um, I believe a, a guest who will be calling in at 1030 has quite a bit of first-hand information um, about, about what unfolded after that. Yeah, very, very interesting case and, and tragic in many ways because it destroyed a lot of people's lives. You are a uh, teacher for a number of years now, right? Yep. Uh, I'm happily in my 21st year of teaching. Wow. How can that be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it surprises me too. Um, and I would say that uh, I'm at a point in my career where I feel uh, very comfortable with the kids, very comfortable approaching the administration if I want to do something uh, for a class uh, with my students. And uh, I could there's there's lots of retirement only because I'm 48 years old now, um, but I have 11 years left, and I'm looking forward to going on field trips and experiencing history and putting history in students' hands as much as possible. So we uh, had Representative Scott Beck uh, from the St. Johnsbury area last week, and he's a uh, he teaches over at uh, St. Johnsbury Academy for 
20 something years, kind of like you, same tenure. And we'll get to the fact that you are a young state representative in a minute. But over the 20 years, have you seen a real metamorphosis of, of students and how they learn and, and behaviors and that kind of thing? Is there, has there been a pattern change for you? Um, I think, yes, probably. Um, I would say, Discipline is certainly different now uh, than it was back in the day when when I was a student or when I was subbing or even when I started teaching. But part of that also is a mindset of the teacher where if you really want your students to get the material, you'll spend the extra couple of minutes maybe taking notes on a student's behavior and trying to approach them in an individual way or in a personal way to try to get them to identify with the content that you're trying to, that you're trying to, um, forward. I would say that the school's attitudes about suspensions have changed quite a bit. Um, back in the day, it was not uncommon for students to be out of school for disciplinary reasons. And I think schools have really looked at some of the data about trying to keep students out of the system. Um, apparently, there are some pretty raw data points that say that the more students are suspended, the more the students are out of school based on consequences, the more they have a chance to do other stupid things that the police need to follow up on or that somebody else needs to follow up on. So I think there's a mindset of trying to keep students in the school as long as possible. It's good to hear. I mean, uh, sometimes the school is really their only lifeline in many ways. Yeah, and I should add that, you know, 95% of the students um, are are fine, and maybe they use their cell phones too much, or, or maybe they moan and groan about being at school at 8 o'clock in the morning. But um, for that 5 to 7% that has interactions with the school resource officer or negative interactions with the teacher or administrator, I, I do think we try to go the extra mile to keep them in the school and keep them in the classes as long as possible. And I was hearing from you, you it's meeting them where they're at. Is that sort of your style? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, when I was in school, there was a lot of reading assignments, a lot of multiple choice assignments, essays. Usually when you finished off a chapter or a unit or a section, there was a handwritten test. And there was a time when uh, education went more project-based, which is good, and I think we're still there. But um, I know with my teaching, I'm definitely um, experiential. So if there's a student who really wants to use their hands and, you know, you can just – you can have a conversation with them in the way that they're answering questions and uh, they're not getting all of the content, then put some of the content in their hands. And uh, just an example that I would use that I think goes fairly well with my students is with the local history class. Uh, one of the things that I'll do is talk about when the first French Canadian settlers came to the Swanton area and matches hadn't been invented yet. So uh, they had to use a flint and steel to start fires. Or with the Native Americans, they would have had the, the bow drill method. So I had talked to my department head 
about getting some of that those old pieces of technology for my students. And um, a student who would have trouble crafting an essay, a student who would have trouble answering a lot of multiple choice questions, uh, you get them outside in uh, 25 or 30 degree weather, and they're having a blast trying to collect the proper fire making materials to, to start that fire. So it's it's neat to see the students fail at that, and it's really neat to see them succeed at that. Yeah, it's not an easy thing. You need the right tinder, and you got to do it right. But how wonderful that you can you know put a practical application uh, into play with the with the students. Yeah, and I would also argue that school. Um, and I was a student who was definitely into the book learning. Um, I loved reading, and and some of the text that were assigned in English class or social studies class, I, I absolutely devoured those. But not everybody learns that way. So school is also about um, connections and making memories. And even though I may have loved reading The Grapes of Wrath in 10th grade, um, I would argue that the memory that the student made making a fire in their social studies class outside when there's snow on the ground, that's something that they're probably going to have with them for a little while, I hope. And you're a teacher, but you really become a social nurturer too, right? Uh, yes. it's um, That is probably the most exhausting part of the job. And I think COVID probably has a, um, a certain effect on that. But I also just think that recognizing that our population – they're in front of us. They're growing up. So um, even though our so our contract starts at 7:30, and our classes don't start until eight o'clock, I usually have three or four students in my room right at 7:30, and they're joking around. They're um, putting coffee in the coffee maker. They're um, just sort of uh, entertained, and and uh, they're getting to know their teachers on a personal level allows them to like school a little bit more. Yeah, thank goodness. And, you know, we've talked on this show over, over the last year about what we call the lost boys. And really, if, you, if they leave the school, their chances of success greatly diminish. So. Yeah. And, and I, I will, um, I can't mention names, but there, there have been times where, um, and it's not just me. I think a lot of teachers are going the extra mile to do the, those sorts of things. But there was one student who, um, he threw a water bottle in class and it ended up hitting another kid in the head and got me kind of wet. And um, in the moment, I did what I think any teacher would have done. I asked him to leave. And then I tried to follow up with him later. He was um, kind of grumbling about that. And, and I didn't get the chance to um, to connect with him that day. And then later on, I learned that he had decided to move on, that he and his um, mom had discussed uh, another educational venue, but I happened to run into him in Hannaford uh, just a couple weeks after that, and uh, I went over and, and I just shook his hand and I smiled at him and I said that I heard that uh, he had moved on from the school system, and uh, he was surprised that I just went over and, and started to chat with him in a personal way, and uh, I think about that student often, and I hope he's doing well. We're talking with Jason Barney. He's a history teacher. He is the author of uh, several uh, books about Vermont and also a recent award winner of a 
Vermont History Teacher of the Year. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, yeah, so um, I think the recognition that I uh, recently received uh, is related to some of the field trips that I do for my Abnaki and local history class. And the administration and the taxpayers up in Swanton, Franklin, and Highgate have been great about um, supporting getting my students from the classroom to local history venues. It costs a lot of money for bus trips, um, but again, I, I can't thank them enough for their support. Uh, probably the one that got the most sort of community recognition and I would even say interest from the students was um, the fate of the old Riviera Hotel in Swanton uh, last year. So um, like anybody who's from that area, there's a, there was an old hotel in Swanton that um, when you drove by, you could just tell that it was a building that was uh, not being taken care of. And I think even in my generation, when um, the Riviera had sort of ceased to exist as a hotel, grandmas and grandma, grandmas and grandpas and old neighbors, they would tell stories of, of this old building. Teaching the local history class, I just saw it as a, as a neat thing to latch on to, to try to gauge student interest. And I started just by putting a couple of slideshows together from the Swanton Historical Society of uh, postcards that we have from the inside of the hotel. And the students immediately... Um, their interest were, was piqued because they would hear stories of either a homeless person living there or the building was haunted. So I just went to the village manager in Swanton and, and asked a couple of times um, if the state of the building was in such disrepair, if it would be okay not to take an entire class in, but to take a couple of students who were really, really interested. And uh, the answer was no the first couple of times, um, but I can be persistent and polite. Um, and uh, we finally got in. Uh, the village manager in Swanton, Bill Sheets, uh, took myself and a group of three students um, inside to this old, moldy, rotting building. And um, it was it was kind of neat to see the looks on the students' faces. But... I, the work didn't stop there because I just wanted to um, I, I wanted to look at some of the work that we ask our students to. So in my class, one of the questions I ask is, what should be preserved? And Swanton had made this decision to get rid of this building. Uh, the village had purchased it and purchased it for the sole purpose of not rehabilitating it but tearing it down. So uh, I, I'm not very good with technology. There's several things on my phone that I don't know what they are, but um, I went to the MVU tech folks and um, they said that they had a 3D camera that they could go in. Uh, they wanted to go inside, but I didn't think I could get them inside the, of the Riviera. But we did um, a second uh, walkthrough uh, with the village manager um, wearing a sort of a 3D camera cap. And uh, so that question about what do we preserve um, we were able to take modern technology, and now we have um, footage of the inside of that Riviera Hotel that will be preserved um, so that students in the future, they can put on the 3D Oculus goggles, and they can do a virtual tour of that building. We also took the school's drone, and we did uh, a flyby of the outside. So if a student wanted to 
reconstruct a uh, 3D model or if they wanted to do some sort of research about what the building was like at the very end, we documented it in a very hands-on way. And was this a high-end, uh, glamour destination in its day? Yeah. So the, the history of northern Vermont, um, we used to be a, quite the tourist de- um, de- destination for all of the ferries that were on Lake Champlain. And certainly with the rail industry uh, in Swanton, the, the railroad depot was literally right behind where this old hotel was and the the riv would have been one of three or four really nice hotels uh, that was just in Swanton alone and then if you take a look at the archives of the other historical societies in the area Richford and Enosburg and, and Sheldon, uh, they had really nice hotels and some of them were related to some of the springs of the area. So um, at its peak, the RIV, uh, one of my students found specific information on newspapers.com. They had um, enough rooms for 24 separate accommodations. Wow. So so we. I want to uh, segue over to the Paul Lawrence uh, case. Can you set that up for us so that – and we'll be, have uh, Attorney James Levy from St. Albans who defended a lot of the uh, people involved will be joining us at uh, 1030. But set it up for us, Jason. Yeah. So um, my involvement – I'll talk about my involvement in a sort of a, a back-end sort of way and then um, – well, that'll probably lead into Jim's call. So um, doing a lot of the local history research, I um, had gone to great lengths to try to find a couple of Vietnam War guest speakers. And I was very interested in making sure that students had the opportunity to chat with uh, people who had served in the military, see them, hear their stories. That research and my exposure to the Vietnam vets led me to do quite a bit of research on the counterculture in Vermont in the 1960s. And I've made contact with uh, many of the people who would be considered part of the Bank to the Land movement. And I was excited. I was very interested to learn that some of these back-to-the-land sort of colonies or, or collectives were in the area where I grew up, in the towns that are just down the road. And and through that, I just continued to try to make contact with some people who were on the local rock bands and some people who were part of the counterculture. And one of them, uh, Mita Strick, uh, up in the St. Albans uh, Fairfield area, she mentioned something called the Second St. Albans Raid. And I didn't have any prior knowledge. I think maybe I had heard about it in conversations, but it wasn't anything that I had investigated. So in... Uh, 71, 72, the folks in St. Albans, the folks in, in Franklin County, the, the people in the state of Vermont, they are extremely um, frustrated, I would assume, if they're from a conservative point of view, that um, there were all of these war protests still going on. Uh, Vermonters served in Vietnam. The, uh, at one point in my research, I had identified people who had been from Franklin and Highgate and Swanton and St. Albans who had, who had died in Vietnam. So I think locals became uh, very frustrated seeing a lot of these long hairs around, and they associated the uh, growing use of marijuana with yeah. those individuals. So you get to 73, 
and the counterculture presence in St. Albans is pretty obvious. There's a bulk, uh, a bar called Tuners, owned by a name, owned by a guy by the name of Otto Kramer. And then there's another, um, establishment called Sandcastles. And I, at the time, there were a lot of people who were hanging out in Taylor Park, and members of the city council didn't like it. Uh, there were marijuana arrests that were going on. Um, and they decided to employ Paul Lawrence, and uh, he was in St. Albans in Franklin County for about a month, maybe a month and a half, doing his job, um, but doing his job his way. And on October 25th of 1973, a mass arrest was arranged in St. Albans where about 30 people were um, nabbed by the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, the state police, St. Albans police, and they had all acted on evidence that was brought forth by Paul Lawrence that these people were not just pot smokers, that um, they were selling heroin, that they had um, a lot of LSD, that they were um, using cocaine, selling cocaine in the area. So uh, that's that particular incident is the second St. Albans raid, um, and your caller here in a minute, uh, Jim Levy, was the defendant or the, the lawyer for those defendants. And then there are two more. There's one in um, November or December where another, I think, 12 people are arrested in St. Albans. And then on February 19th of 74, there's another 10 from Swanton. And this is one undercover narc who was sort of deemed super cop, right? Yes. And uh, he he's responsible for all of these. Yes. Which and, is part of the story. And, and um, Hamilton Davis's book, uh, Mocking Justice, is probably the best source on it. I know some people have read it. I've read it a couple of times. And um, I highly recommend anybody who's listening to get a copy of that book and, and read the details from 50 years ago. Yeah, and uh, my colleague Pat McDonald will be uh, interviewing Hamilton Davis, so that's, uh, stay tuned for that. I don't know when that is coming up. Uh, Jason mentions this as the second St. Albans raid. The first one was a Civil War bank robbery in St. Albans, the northernmost skirmish of the of the civil war right yeah yeah and um just that's actually a local history uh, vein that i haven't done uh anything with my students on just because it's received so much attention but there's always room for growth with my field trips so well scenes of coming attraction right uh nothing like a bank robbery and heading off into canada to add excitement to your day uh not suggesting that to our listening audience it's uh just it's history we have been talking with Jason Barney about teaching and about uh, – we didn't get into his books too much, but he's got some great history books that he's written, uh, preserving uh, history here in Vermont and, and uh, it – you know, applying to his, his teaching. He's an award-winning teacher and a couple times over. And he set up for us the, the Paul Lawrence case and a, an undercover narc who, uh, was deemed super cop and, uh, arresting, 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 making busts and, uh, 
We have on the line now, I want to welcome uh, James Levy. James is a, a native of New York City, uh, but is practicing uh, law in St. Albans for a long time, criminal and civil litigation, and uh, knows the lay of the land legally and around. Welcome to the show, James. James, are you here? I'm here. Uh, what would you like me to comment on? And oh, I'll, well, James, I'm, I'll set this up for you a little bit. Um, this is not a specific example, but s- someone might come into your office and they have $100 bills hanging out their pockets and they've got uh, dye spray on their face from from a packet that the teller had handed them and they said they were being accused of robbing a bank and they were absolutely innocent. And uh, you, as a good attorney, represent them, but you you have some sense of what might have occurred. But in the Paul Lawrence case, a little bit different, though, right? Oh, absolutely. I uh, think, to me, if you were to ask me in my uh, checkered legal career uh, what s- series of cases had the most uh, enduring impact on my professional uh, life, I unequivocally would state uh, the Paul Lawrence episode, and it was a series of cases, but uh, uh, there's no question but that uh, these cases uh, uh, have uh, scarred me or have affected me for life and have uh, inevitably shaped my view of the court system and of uh, the nature of uh, the practice of law, et cetera. But in answer to your question, I think what you're leading up to is what made these cases uh, so obvious uh, to most of the defense attorneys that the clients were innocent. Certainly, uh, it's not unusual for a uh, an attorney to represent an individual who might uh, be guilty of a crime. But in these cases, uh, across the board, uh, there was a a sense of outrage and a client saying, I'm innocent, completely innocent. And where it comes to, uh, uh, I guess, uh, probably the episode I should uh, recite, which best illustrates it, was after Paul Lawrence was exposed for what he was, which was a pathological liar who ruined the lives of uh, hundreds of innocent people. And it should be brought out that uh, Lawrence's episode of terror wasn't just confined to Franklin County, Vermont, in uh, 1973 and 1974, but uh, prior to that in southern Vermont and other regions of New England, actually as far as Maine, his ugly tentacles were present. there was an episode, uh, I believe, uh, in the uh, Lawrence was exposed for what he was in uh, late 1974. Uh, four. Uh, I believe in 1975 or 76, I recall there was a case where a, a client of mine who had uh, actually been totally innocent of the crimes for which uh, Lawrence uh, accused him. I uh, was brought into court on a drug charge where he actually was guilty. 
And in this instance, he uh, was released on his own recognizance by uh, the presiding judge. And uh, in the presence of the then sheriff, Roland Keenan, and others, he scratches his head as he walks out the uh, courtroom. He says, I'll never understand that uh, judge. When I'm uh, truly innocent, he throws me in the slammer, and when I'm guilty, he lets me out on my own recognizance. <laughs> uh, that, I think, echoes the sentiment of innocence. But uh, for me, the episode, uh, uh, I was totally unaware of what was going on until uh, the date of the uh, second St. Albans raid, which was October 24, 1973. And I'll never forget that day. I was walking on the sidewalk with a very good friend of mine, and uh, suddenly we see all these uh, police vehicles, state police, St. Albans City Police, Franklin County Sheriff's Department, uh, and uh, numerous people being uh, 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 arrested and escorted uh, in handcuffs along Main Street. And one of those people was the... Uh, a stepbrother of uh, my friend, and um, actually it was Gary Burbank, and I'll never forget that scene. The sudden, what's going on? Uh, it's very unusual, though, for this sort of thing to happen, and ultimately, uh, the uh, uh, final denouement uh, showed that uh, uh, Paul Lawrence was what he was, which was a scoundrel. Uh, and a pathological liar who ruined many lives. There are uh, two dimensions to this, which I'll emphasize, and if I talk too much, well, most lawyers do, uh, please cut me off. Uh, the two dimensions that I think need to be emphasized is before Lawrence was done just in Franklin County, I think there were 106 arrests of innocent people, totally innocent people. And I say that because uh, when Lawrence was exposed for what he was, uh, the then governor, Tom Salmon, appointed a commission. And I believe that commission recommended that in over 240 cases, 240 cases statewide in Vermont, uh, innocent people had been uh, convicted of crimes and they should all be pardoned. Uh, but the lives of many of these people were uh, uh, affected in such an adverse way that some of them never reco recovered. There were at least two suicides that occurred. There were numerous other uh, a total uh, uh, carnage to the lives of these people. And that's one element that we should never forget. The lives of young people were ruined. I uh, uh, recall so many people who were innocent just walking around mystified, how could this be happening? Yeah, definitely uh, a, a bad part of uh, the, the history in Vermont. Uh, we have been talking about the Paul Lawrence case, which was 50 years ago, which is quite amazing to me how time flies. Paul Lawrence, an undercover narc, uh, set up and uh, had arrested, subsequently got arrested, a, a lot of uh, innocent people who weren't even where he said they were. And uh, so my uh, co-host now, Jason Barney, who's a history teacher, he's he's got some questions for you as well, James. 
Good. Jim, thanks for being on. Yes, good morning, Jason. So I've talked to my students uh, about this event that happened 50 years ago, and my students are amazed to learn that there was a, a hippie bar in St. Albans at one point in time called Tuners. Um, and you and I have talked a little bit, and um, the, the character of Otto Kramer is mentioned. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, though, is when exactly you started to suspect that uh, the innocence that your clients were proclaiming was actually probably true and something was very wrong with Paul Lawrence's story. Yes, well, the defining moment for me, uh, keep in mind, again, October 24th, 1973 was the date of the second St. Albans raid. 27 innocent innocent uh, uh, hippie types primarily were arrested. When did I uh, become aware, other than the protestations of my clients, I represented uh, 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 certainly at that point maybe 10 of the 27. Uh, there I also represented the bar, which was the center of the supposed uh, drug activity, Tuner's Place, and there was a state liquor board proceeding in Montpelier in November 1974, uh, where uh, the liquor license of Tuner Place was temporarily suspended, and it was a two-day hearing. So the first day, uh, I went down defending my client, and that was where Paul Lawrence was revealed. Up to that time, no one knew who uh, the uh, narc was that was making making all these uh, transactions, uh, making all these purchases. So at that uh, proceeding, uh, he testified, and the first day, of course, uh, you're, you never who is Paul Lawrence? Didn't know. That evening, the evening of that uh, in November, I went back to my law office around seven o'clock or so. And I made some phone calls. I called Peter Langrock, a distinguished attorney in Middlebury, who immediately knew who Paul Lawrence was because uh, he, Peter, had defended an innocent person uh, uh, who had been accused by Lawrence. And uh, Peter gave me information. He said, you really should call John Deppman, who was the uh, then um, prosecutor in Addison County. I was able to reach John Deppman that evening, who uh, uh, mentioned that he would never... Uh, prosecute a case where there was uh, testimony to be given by Paul Lawrence and proceeded to uh, give me other names. There was an attorney uh, down in southern Vermont, Eddie John. I called him. I uh, uh, was able to speak to him that evening, and he uh, uh, informed me about how uh, one of his clients had been framed by Lawrence. So I went back the next day with a little bit of information. I might mention that that state liquor board proceeding was the only proceeding which was truly fair, unbiased, and the tribunal, the liquor board members, gave us a fair hearing, and at the end of the hearing, they were sufficiently persuaded such that the temporary uh, suspension of the license was lifted uh, uh, until uh, there was a final resolution of the criminal cases. So the queer, it was, so what I would say is, in a matter of a couple of hours, I was able to obtain enough information, and I'm not a, uh, an investigator, enough information to generate legitimate doubt as to the validity of uh, the charges, why is it that the prosecutors in this matter uh, 
refused to look into leads that were right out there waiting to be followed. So, Jim, if I, if I can ask a follow-up to that. On the 24th, um, you're going to be doing the presentation with Randy Brock, who uh, you just mentioned that you were not an investigator, but Randy was. Yes. Um, would you mind talking about um, what Randy's role in this was? No, Randy Brock, who now is a distinguished state senator and I think the leader of the Republican minority in the state senate, uh, in those days uh, was an investigator. He had a company, Champlain Security Systems, and uh, Champlain was hired by the public defender uh, to do an investigation of Paul Lawrence. And he came up with an incredible amount of uh, information about Lawrence's checkered background, everything from uh, uh, the discharge from the military, where uh, Lawrence said he had an honorable discharge. It wasn't. He had been uh, dishonorably discharged uh, uh, to instances where uh, uh, Lawrence, who had previously been a uh, state uh, a police officer, had shot out his own police cruiser window in order to give credibility to a, a crazy story about how he had been shot at, to instances where uh, Lawrence, immediately prior to being hired by St. Albans, had been at Virgins, the police chief, and had all kinds of problems there, including uh, one of the most ridiculous stories you'll ever hear, where he uh, took money from Virgins to wine and dine one of his secretaries, taking her to Montreal, and claimed it was part of a drug investigation and on and on and on. So Randy Brock had a, a key part, put together this investigative report with a lot of other allegations. We presented it to the then prosecutors locally and to the uh, attorney general of the state of, uh, of Vermont, uh, Kim Cheney. And most of this stuff was just uh, thrown under the rug. Uh, uh, in fact, what was most concerning, I mentioned the two elements of this that upset me. One were the impact on the victims. The other way was the dysfunctional nature of our system. I've been led to believe at that point as a young, naive lawyer that there are checks and balances uh, existing and that a prosecutor, just like a defense attorney, is an officer of the court whose primary obligation is to seek out the truth. And that was proven not to be the case because the prosecutors were uh, basically trying to be rubber stamps for the police and uh, purposely chose to ignore any information that tended to discredit the validity of the charges they were so vigorously prosecuting. The uh, Paul Lawrence, presumably, James, was given some cash because he had he was buying drugs, allegedly, uh, and would what happened? I mean, where were the drugs? Was there actually, was he bringing in drugs that he allegedly had purchased? No, it was very bizarre. Uh, the, Vermont had a, a credible state lab, had then, still does. What Paul Lawrence was doing, one of his hunting buddies uh, was a, uh, a chemist at the New York State Lab in Albany, New York. A uh, typical scenario uh, would be Paul Lawrence would uh, supposedly uh, make a buy, never met uh, the uh, suspect, but was able 
quite often to say, uh, I just uh, purchased this uh, powdery substance from a fellow who's uh, working at uh, Tuner's place, come making an identification, an identification was made. The drugs were then taken by Paul Lawrence. He tagged them, held on to them for a, a few weeks, then when he had maybe 15, 20 samples, uh, would take them to New York State, but it was uh, the thing that was bizarre, he would pocket the money. So if he had uh, several hundred dollars to do a drug buy, he'd pocket the money and uh, uh, take a watered-down sample of what was a drug, which he had obtained from a display kit, which had been given him uh, by this uh, uh, chemist in New York, and it would be cycled again back to New York. Never uh, was tested in uh, by the Vermont State uh, uh, Police la uh, Lab, and uh, also was held on to for long periods of time by Lawrence. So uh, Lawrence would be recycling these drugs that he had obtained from New York State. Well, you just can't make that up. We only have a minute or two left, James. Uh, you did see a little light at the end of the tunnel with with clients right uh and were able to even though they went through excruciating mental and pain on this they 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 got out and and lawrence ultimately went to jail is that what happened uh he did and of course the denouement is fascinating it involved pat lay who was then the uh, state's attorney in uh, Chittenden County in a setup where a, a narc, a real narc from the New York City Police Department came up to Burlington and uh, Lawrence was under surveillance as well as the narc who was given the alluring nomiker, uh, the rabbi, and uh, supposedly Lawrence, uh, by his affidavit, purchased heroin from the rabbi, which of course didn't occur, and he was uh, uh, immediately apprehended. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, ultimately uh, there was uh, uh, an exposure to Lawrence, and there were civil suits brought by the victims. But the monies never, never were sufficient to compensate these people. Uh, ironically, one of the principal insurers uh, in, uh, went bankrupt, so you can imagine the effect it had on the ultimate uh, payments. But uh, the system itself was uh, uh, totally. Lord, and I'll give one last example. Uh, one of the trials I had involved, and again, all of these cases were the defendant versus the credibility of Lawrence. Nine of my 12 jurors, nine out of 12, had sat on one of the previous Paul Lawrence trials and had decided in a one-on-one confrontation, Lawrence is telling the truth, the defendant is lying. How do you get a fair trial in that uh, setting? Oh, dear. Uh, James, I want to thank you so much. As usual, these shows fly by, but what an insight in the anniversary 50 years coming up. Uh, there'll be a lot more about that. Hamilton Davis is the author of Mocking Justice, which James is prominently featured in, and Randy Brock as well. Uh, this is Vermont Viewpoint. I've been talking with uh, Jason Barney and James Levy, attorney in St. Albans. Uh, we have had a good two hours with you listeners. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint. We'll see you next week.